Today, Pastor Ken Bringis continues our series, Summer in the Psalms, with a message from Psalm 18. After having dug to a depth of 10 feet last year, British scientists found traces of copper wire dating back 200 years. And they came to the conclusion that their ancestors had a telephone network already set up more than 150 years ago. Not to be outdone by the Brits, American scientists and archaeologists dug to a depth of 20 feet, and shortly after, a story was published in the New York Times. American archaeologists finding traces of 250-year-old copper wire have concluded that their ancestors already had an advantaged high-tech communications network. 50 years before the Brits. One week later, Department of Minerals and Energy in Western Australia reported the following. This is for you, Pastor John. After digging as deep as 30 feet in Western Australia, Jack Looknow, a self-taught archaeologist, reported that he found absolutely nothing. Jack has therefore concluded that 250 years ago, Australia had already gone wireless. <laughs> proud to be an, Austra- an Aussie. Else <laughs> for you. I don't know if you've been watching the, all the, the madness with the political race that's happening right now in America. And, uh, I don't know, but you know, there's already so much negativity and criticism and gossip and rejection going on in social media right now. And uh, when you get into a political race like we're in right now, uh, it just seems to escalate, doesn't it? It's like there's no more political, there's no more, there's no such thing as political discourse anymore. There's no one having a conversation. It's just, you know, blaming and all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, this is the society in which we live. Just spend some time on social networking a little bit, right? And every positive thing that's on social networking, all you got to do is scroll down the comments. And it just gets undone somehow by some unjust criticism or negativity or blaming or whatever. And uh, in that kind of society, you know, it's easy for us to adopt what has been called a victim mentality, like we're just the helpless victims of all this criticism, all this blaming, of all this injury and rejection and criticism. There's nothing we can do about it. And and you see, it's one thing to have injury happen to you or harm come to you, and it's another thing in terms of how you respond to that situation. You could respond completely in a wrong kind of way. And often what happens is a victim mentality shows up when you find yourself as a target of misfortune or attack or harm, and in response, you start to blame back. You start to complain. You start to criticize. You start to gossip. You start to compare yourself and your situation with others, and you start feeling sorry for yourself, and you start acting as if you had no choice. And before you know it, you may just kind of feel like you no longer have and you're no longer taking responsibility for your life, and it actually feels comfortable. See, the heart of the victim mentality is this feeling of powerlessness. That if we don't deal with it, it becomes an attitude and belief that sucks you in. 
This morning, as we explore Psalm 18, we're going to listen to a king, King David, who poetically and powerfully expresses his thanksgiving to God in this song because God had rescued him from a really bad situation. And in the process of walking through a part of this psalm, we're going to pick up some cues on how to move from having a, and nurturing a victim mentality into living a life of victory. Psalm 18 is the fourth longest psalm in the whole book of Psalms. And we're going to look at a little bit of it today. We're not going to do the whole thing. But I want to start out by um, showing you the title of this psalm. Not all the psalms in the book of Psalms have titles. This one does. The title says, this is what the psalm, the context of the psalm. It's for the director of music. So it's a song that was written for the music director in the tabernacle. And it's of David, so it was written by David, the servant of God. Now watch, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this is kind of the background, the context of this song um, where David has gone through a really difficult time but has come through it and now he's, he's singing this song and offering this song from a standpoint or a place of victory. Now you've got to think back to David's experience because many of the psalms are written out of real life experiences. This is why you, there's so much emotion in the psalms. But if you think, imagine David looking back over those life-defining moments, those 20 or so years of running from King Saul, he was a fugitive. He was fighting for his life. He was hiding from a, a crazy king, literally mad king. He lost his best friend. He was moving from place to place. He struggled to lead a ragtag, disillusioned band of thug warriors. David was falsely accused. He was unfairly blamed. He was misunderstood. He was a target of Saul's jealousy, and thus he was a man who lived many years with a price on his head. Most of his young adult life, he spent running for his life, getting by, going from one place to another. He was in survival mode. Anybody ever feel that? That all I'm doing is going from one moment to another in survival mode? That was David. For much of his young adult life, he was the hunted he was a wanted man, a victim of a powerful king's insecurity. And he endured losses and suffered losses. He lost his safety. He lost his youth. He lost his family. He lost his career. He lost his rights to choose. He lost his right to even have a voice. For many years, he even lost his connection with the covenant people of God, the very community that nurtured his faith early on. He ended up serving in the enemy's camp, the camp of the Philistines, fighting for them for a season. And he lived under the threat of his own fears of a crazy king. He probably during those years questioned God. Can you relate to David? Of course we can. We've all been through it. But in spite of his undesirable circumstances, David continued to seek God. He continued to hunger and thirst for God. He remained faithful to the Lord. And eventually things turned around. Let me tell you something, folks. I know it seems like this season of difficulty has been going on forever and ever, but that too will pass. Right? Put it in perspective. The season changed for David, and he began, well, Saul died. He got promoted to the highest leadership position in the nation. He became king. 
And he does what really good leaders do. He realizes that he is not there because of he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He realized that God had been faithful in his life and he chose not to forget what God had brought him out of. And this particular song is a reflection of David's thanksgiving. Many of us, many of you, think, or you may not think that you're in a place of victory right now. You may not be there. David is in a place of victory when he writes this psalm. Some of us go, man, I wish I was there. But listen, you might be in an unpredictable, unpredictable, uncertain time in your life right now. You might be in a place where you feel like you're being hunted down, where you're the victim of everybody else's issues, where, where you're suffering pain unjustly. You might feel like this is just an ongoing season of struggle and heartache and confusion, and what in the world is God up to? David would tell you from this position of victory, he would say, I know what you're going through. And there's an end to it. I know what you're going through. And even while you're going through it, you can do what I did. You can choose to trust and love the Lord. You can choose to call upon him. You can appeal to the goodness of God because he's a good God. And you can ask for his intervention and deliverance. Listen, David ran from Saul for many years. David was chosen when he was a teenager. God told Samuel to anoint him as king when he was just that age. But it was years until, it took years before he actually stepped into that position, before the fulfillment of that promise on David's life actually happened. And what David began to realize was that those years in between when he was anointed king and when he actually became king, all of those years were not meaningless years. All of those painful years were not wasted. They were needed to prepare him for the stewardship that God was about to give him of the kingdom. And so many of us, you know, we're right there at the beginning. We know God has given us a promise. We know we've put a dream in our hearts. And we experience all of these difficulties and obstacles in the meantime. We haven't yet seen the fruition or the fulfillment of that dream. Listen, that pain and all that you're going through is not wasted. God is using it. He's working it in. I was telling someone earlier, it's like he's weaving a tapestry. You ever see a back, the backside of a tapestry? You don't even know what that thing is. It's so confusing. It's all these interwoven threads and strands. You're like, what does this all mean? You've got to turn it over. And you go, oh, it's really beautiful. But it doesn't look beautiful when you're weaving it. The situation and season that some of you are going through may not be all that beautiful, but it but trust me, God is weaving something beautiful out of it. If you will put your trust in him, if you will stand and refuse to be, refuse to nurture a victim mentality. Like, God, I'm here just because everyone else has done something wrong to me, and there's nothing I can do about it. I feel powerless, on and on and on. There is something you can do. And David gives us a little pattern here I want to show you. How to move from victimhood into victory. So tell the person next to you, you don't need to be a victim. You can live in victory. And here's the first thing I want you to see what David does. In moving out of this mentality, David starts the song with a choice to love an all-powerful God. He says, I will love you. 
oh Lord, my strength. The word that he uses here for love, it's a very unique word in the Hebrew. It's not the typical word we see. In fact, it's, it's used elsewhere to refer of God's love and compassion and mercy for people. But David here uses it in reference to his love for God. And it carries a more intimate notion and a more intimate affection, a tenderness toward God. This is the kind of love. He says, I will love you, Lord, with a tenderness, with an intimacy, with an affection. He's not just saying, I love you, God, because you bailed me out and rescued me so many times. He's loving God, not just because of what he's been through, but he's loving God for, because he realizes that God used all the trials and all the difficulties to make him the man he has become today. And so, Lord, I love you for the work that you've done. He's not bitter at God. He's not blaming God like many victims will. He's not saying, man, God, it's about time you delivered me. Man, it's about time you showed up, here in, up in here in this place. No. He's saying, God, I love you. I love you, and I'm grateful for the years that, of trouble because it's done something good in me. If you're going to start moving from victimhood, victim mentalities into victory, you need to first start by setting your love, setting your affection on God. God, I'm going to lean into you. I'm going to praise you and trust your heart, even though I'm not sure what you're doing here. And I don't see what you promised. I'm going to praise and trust your loving heart. I'm going to set my affection on you. That's right out of, Corinth, of Colossians 3. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. And David does this by declaring and praising God's character. He says, Lord, I love you. And then he goes into this litany of descriptions of, how, of why he loves God so much. He says, Lord, I love you because the Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer. In other words, he's my stability, he's my security, and he's my savior. He says, my God, my strength, in whom I trust, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. The horn was a symbol of strength and conquest. He says, he's my stronghold. Notice how many times he says my in this. And, and this is not David saying, you know, I'm going to be this possessive dude like God is all mine. This is not that. This is David saying, God, my experience of you is very, very personal. There are so many times, God, when I felt my weakness, but you were my strength. There were so many times, scary moments, where I felt so vulnerable, but you were my refuge. There were so many times where I just thought, man, I'm done. Saul has got me. I am going to die today. And you're going to see that in a second. There were so many times when I was on the point of thinking that it was all over and you came through for me. You were my rescue and salvation. David chose to set his affection on God and to praise God and to not blame God. And then he goes, I will call. Say, I will call. Just like we said, the sang earlier, I will call upon your name. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and so shall I be saved from my enemies. I love this. Like, the strength that David uses to praise the Lord here is the same strength out of which he calls upon the Lord to deliver him. The energy for his prayers flows from his praise. 
You think, I just couldn't come to church because I want to pray. No, no. Come to praise because it's in praising God. Praise is the language of faith. It's in praising God that your faith gets built up to pray in faith for whatever it is you need God to do. So, (laughs) he reflects this here. David knows, man, because I'm going to live in praise, because I'm going to praise you, God, that my prayers are not a shot in the dark. It's not hit and miss anymore. That when I ask you, Father, to save me from my enemies, you will do so. And David has learned that God can be praised even when life breaks down, even when the enemy surrounds. God will come to the rescue. Now, how many of you know that in actually the life of David, there were many times where it seemed like God answered in the nick of time? You know, like we all want God to come in our time, but often God answers right in the nick of time. And we go, whoo, God, that was a close one, man. Next time it would be nice if you answered a little earlier. You know, because I got a schedule to keep. Yeah. Sometimes God doesn't do that. Because David definitely had moments where he felt the victimization of his situation. In verse 4, he says, the cords Sorry, where is it? Right here, verse 4. The cords of death entangled me. Ever know, you know what it's like to be entangled? Like, I don't know which door to run to because everywhere I run, I'm in the same room. I can't get out of the web. You ever see a fly stuck in a spider web? The more they struggle, the more they get caught in the web. He says, death was entangling me like that. He says, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. David's in in real despair, and he's in real desperation. He's in over his head. He's the victim of overwhelming trouble. The odds are against him. And he could have gotten stuck in a victim mentality. Oh, Lord, my life just sucks man, why is it so bad for me and so good for everyone else? Man, look at those people over there. They don't even follow you and they're just enjoying life. And look at me over here, right? Ever get stuck in that? It can be easy at times, especially if you're looking around to compare your situation with everybody on Facebook. And you know half that stuff is a lie. (laughs) They can post any kind of picture and Photoshop it and make it look like life is good for them. But this is not what David does. He says, he says, in my distress, how many of you are stressed out? How many of you, the stress has turned into distress? He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice and his cry came. Uh, my cry came before him into his ears. So here's the next thing you need to do. You're gonna move out of this victim mentality Sometimes <laughs> you just need to humble yourself and ask for help. You know, um, over the years in, in this church, we've, we've talked constantly as, as a staff um, about how to help people who are in need in our congregation. And I remember at one time we were having this conversation. We were like, hey, uh, we would love to, uh, to help out people in our church. Like the book of Acts, you know, when you know there's a need. Like just, you know, 
try to, try to fill it and try to fulfill it and try to, to meet it and all that. <laughs> and, uh, and then the question became, after a few weeks of talking about that, how do we know who, who's needy? And then I remember one person said, you know, Pastor, in this congregation, people don't want to admit that they are. They don't, they don't want to admit that they're weak and needy. They don't want to admit they even have a need. They'll walk on in their pride a- until they're in jail, you know, and then go, until they're fully addicted, until they hit rock bottom and go, oh, yeah, by the way, I have a need. I need help. Don't wait till it's already full-blown to admit you need some help. First, talk to God about it. And then sometimes you need God with skin on. You know what I mean? You need the body of Christ. You need people that you, can lo- you love and trust, that love Jesus, that you say, man, brother, man, sister, I need help. Especially you guys out there, right? We hate this. We, we hate asking for help, just like we hate asking for directions. Because there's something in a guy's heart and soul that says, if I ask for help, I'm going to be perceived as what? Yeah. See, I didn't even need to tell you. And by the way, that's what the research shows too. Men in America fear being perceived as weak. And we got to get over that, man. Because that's not the way of the kingdom. Now, you know, well, let me just say it this way. The way of the kingdom is that through weakness, you're able to experience God's strength. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, right? Where he has that thorn in the flesh and he says, God, take this away from me. And then he has this amazing revelation that Jesus comes to him and answers his, his request, but not in the way he wanted. God didn't take the suffering away from Paul. He didn't take the thorn in the flesh away. He said what? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, for the self-help guru and for the self-help movement, they'll tell you, admit your weakness, start believing in how powerful and how good you are and how, you know, awesome you are and take control of your life. But for the Christ follower, it's admit your weakness, put your trust in the love and goodness and faithfulness and power of Christ to transform you into all that you were meant to be. And sometimes that process means that God doesn't take away the immediate suffering. Sometimes it means that you have to obey God even though you don't get immediately blessed by what you thought the results of your obedience should have been. The ultimate goal is God is making you more into the image of His Son, that's why we're here. Pastor John said it so beautifully today in teaching the class. That's why you're here. We're not here to relieve, just to relieve you of all your suffering. You know why we pray for the sick? Because we want you to know that the kingdom of heaven has invaded this current reality and God is real and he loves you. And when he heals people, when he touches people in these powerful ways, it's evidence that there is another world to come. But we don't experience it in fullness, do we? Until then, God uses all the pain and suffering of our lives to shape us, to make us more like him. I know that there's debate on that, but 
that's kind of where I'm at right now, all right? <laughs> Until God shifts my theology a little bit. So David goes, God, I'm so weak, and I come to you for strength. And watch this. As he cries to the Lord, in his experience, he says, the Lord answered me. Watch it. He's about to, uh, to describe how God comes to him. I love the poetry of this. It reads like a spoken word piece almost. He says, I called unto the Lord, and he heard my cry, and watch what God did. Then the earth shook and trembled, and the foundations of the hills quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth and coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet and he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. Can you see how, like, God is invading all of nature. He's, like, moving heaven and earth and sky and sea to get to David. He's relentless in his pursuit of David because he's heard his cry. Many of us have grown disillusioned in some ways, I think, because we haven't experienced God come to us in that way. It's not to say that he won't, because you're reading a testimony of how God is when he hears the cries of his children for deliverance. Start believing it again. God moves earth and sky and sea to deliver David. And as God shows up, it's undeniable. It's indisputable that he has come to save. Watch this. He says, when God showed up, when he finally got to me, it says, he sent from above, he took me and drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. There's that admission of weakness. Man, you know what? I am out of my league. This is way too strong for me. This is way too much for me to handle, right? God showed up in the midst of it. And he says, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. Another word for that is a safe place. And he delivered me. Watch this. Why? Because he delighted in me. If we're going to move from playing the victim, getting stuck in a victim mentality, blaming, shaming, self-pitying, excusing, comparing, you're going to move from that into a life of victory and triumph in the Lord. You're going to need to start, hear me out, you're going to need to start believing more in the Lord's view of you than your own view of yourself. You're going to need to live out the truth of God's delight in you. Now, I like these verses, these last verses we're going to deal with here, because David says, in the day of my calamity, like, on the day that I was supposed to have fallen, caved in, on the day that was set up for my complete and total disaster, he says, that day was when God showed up and was my support. But watch this. Not only that, God didn't just stand by and support me. He brought me to safety. And then the kicker. 
Why does he do all this? Because he delighted in me. I want to close with this thought. And then we'll spend some time in more worship and ministry today. David um, will start to talk about in the next few verses why he believes God delights in him. And he talks about how the Lord has rewarded him according to his righteousness, the cleanness of his hands. Basically, David is saying, through all those years that I could have lost it, I stayed faithful to God. I didn't compromise my integrity, and therefore God's rewarding me, and he delights in me. And listen, there is, if you want to please God, God is pleased with righteousness. You want to please God, do what's right. Don't compromise your integrity. You will build a life that is pleasing to God. Okay, that's all throughout the book of Psalms. How many of you know that it's impossible for us to live that out perfectly? (laughs) How many of you know, like we said at the beginning of this series, that Christ is the fulfillment of the Psalms? You know what that means? It means whenever I see David saying things like, It was because of my righteousness, God, that you delight in me, which is what he says in these next verses, that the New Testament reality is our righteousness is as filthy rags. That even if I tried to do good, I'd get puffed up and prideful in doing good, and that'll throw me right back into sin, the sin of self-righteousness. And so, God, this is the gospel. He says, I'm going to I'm going to lay all of your sins on Jesus and I'm going to impute the righteousness. I'm going to apply the righteousness of Jesus to you if you put your faith in him. That's the gospel. That's that's the big part of the gospel, really. So that when God sees you, he sees his son. And he's pleased not with your righteousness, but with the righteousness of of Jesus. And because you can be placed into that position of righteousness and holiness and innocence in an instant, then you can then you have a lifetime to work out the righteous life that he calls us to from a position of righteousness and holiness. So it's not I'm trying to be righteous to earn from God that status. I am going to be righteous because I'm going to live righteous because I already am righteousness. It's, I, am, I am righteous in him. It's an identity thing. The minute the identity changes, the behavior starts to follow. Come on now. All right, so let me, let me end with this thought. This whole idea of delighting, God delighting in us. Every human being has a deep need to be, delight, to be delighted in. Let me say it this way. Many of us, all of us, live with a sense of shame because we don't believe we are worth someone else's delight. Some of you may have seen this TED Talk. It it just, it went viral and it went huge uh, a year ago or so. Or maybe more, I forgot when when it was actually registered. But uh, this gal by the name of Brene Brown. Anybody ever hear that TED Talk, Brene Brown? Uh, now I think it's got about 5 million hits. It's one of the top 20 TED Talks, right, on YouTube. <clears throat> she, she got up on the platform, and she is a, uh, a social worker slash re, um, researcher, and her specialty was in the topic in the area of shame and vulnerability. So she gets up at TED, 
a few years ago, and she does this TED Talk on shame and vulnerability. And the thing unexpectedly gets a million hits. I mean, just boom. And she's catapulted into the public eye, and everybody's wanting interviews and wanting to come and teach and do all that fun stuff. And, uh, and what does that tell you when something gets a response like? It tells you that she's hit on something. She's touched a nerve when she talks about shame. But here, here's one of the things that caught my attention when, in, her, in her talk. She said, in her research, after interviewing thousands of people, she was able to separate out the people that were living with a deep sense of shame and the people who were living with a deep sense of love and belonging and connection. And she said, she separated out these people into these categories, okay? People living out of shame, people living out of a deep sense of love and belonging. And she said, she asked the question, what is the difference? Like, like these are all good people, it seems. You know, they all have the same kind of desires and natural goals and all that, but, but there's, what is the key difference? And she's mulling over this for however many months, and she, she said, in her research, there was only one thing that she found that made the difference between people who lived out of a deep sense of shame, okay, meaning I'm unworthy of people's love and affection and belonging, and, and I'm afraid that you won't accept the person that I really am, so I'll live a false self around you, and I'll live out a person or a self that I think everyone will accept, okay? That's the idea behind shame. She said the difference between those folks and the ones that live with a deep-seated sense of love and belonging connection he said, this is the, the only difference she found. She said that the people who had a strong sense of love and belonging, watch this, believed that they were worthy of love and belonging. The others didn't. That's it. The people that lived out of a deep sense of love and belonging believed they were worthy of it. In the story of the Christian faith, the power of sin enters the world through Adam and Eve and shame comes with it. And so sin destroys and distorts our sense of unworthiness. That's why we all experience shame. And we struggle with shame and we've been struggling ever since. Shame will cripple our capacity for life-giving connection and belonging with God and with others. And there's nothing more that God desires, especially since humanity broke the world. There's nothing more that he desires than to restore all of humanity and creation back into life-giving, authentic relationship with him. And in order to do that, he's got to make a way for our worthiness to be reclaimed for our sense of shame to be removed. How does he do it? Jesus. Which is why he says, the Apostle Paul says, once you were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, but now he has reconciled you in, his body of, in the body of his flesh through death. That's the cross. To do what? What does that do for us? He says, it presents you holy. Say holy blameless, above reproach, not in yourself, but in his sight. Whoa, that blows me away. 
that in the cross and through the cross, through Jesus, our sense of worthiness can be reclaimed by us. That we don't need to live in a shadow of shame. You can believe in your worthiness because you were made in the image of God. And through Christ, you can reclaim that worthiness and live out of a deep sense of love and belonging, secure in his love for you so that you can securely and effectively love other people. In Christ, your righteousness, say my righteousness, my innocence, my purity, my wholeness can be reclaimed. So go get it. Receive it. You don't need to continue living like a victim or in any form of that mentality. You don't need to settle for that, man. And I'm talking to some of you guys in the room. You don't need to settle for that life. You can live a life of victory over the enemy and over the enemies of fear and shame and rejection and despair. Set your affection on him. Humble yourself, guys. Ask for help. Cry out to the Lord. Come to us. Talk to a brother more mature in Christ than you are. Ask for help. And live out the truth of God's delight in you. Listen, how might you be different today? How might life be different today if you were to walk out of this room fully believing not just that you are loved and that you belong to God, but that because you were made in the image of God, you're actually worthy of that love and belonging and connection. And everything you need for your soul to truly come alive and thrive can be found in Jesus and in a relationship with him. You can move from being a victim into a life of victory. Amen? Thank you for listening to today's message. To stay up to date with what's happening at our church or for more information regarding our services, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.